So good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome. My name's David Hempton. I'm the Dean of the Divinity School, and it's my pleasure um, to welcome you to this special lecture on Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the creation of a media phenomenon. Um, when I learned that um, Professor Pedigree would be in the Boston area at the end of March through my uh, sleuthing, I immediately wrote to him, inviting him to come to HDS to share his expertise on, on Martin Luther and the Reformation. So um, Professor Pedigree is well known internationally as one of the leading historians and experts in the field of Reformation studies, <clears throat> and as the founder and director of the Reformation Studies Institute at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Now, since we are indeed dangerously close to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which will be celebrated, well, I guess it'll be celebrated for quite a long time, but uh, next year, uh, in 2017, and our own bicentennial, our own 200th birthday is uh, next year also, um, I thought this would, be, this would get our celebrations off to a roaring start. There would have been no Harvard and no Harvard Divinity School without the Reformation. Um, so we're very glad to be uh, part of that. I have two um, um, rather wacky tangential connections to Professor Pedigree. Um, um, the first is that I was a doctoral student in the history department in uh, St. Andrews University in Scotland, um, uh, where Professor Pedigree um, uh, runs this Reformation Studies Institute. Um, and when I was there, my advisor was the professor of modern history. So I was a doctoral student in the history department. Uh, his name was Norman Gash, very distinguished political uh, historian. Um, um, uh, Norman Gash shared a disciplinary boundary hedge and a real boundary hedge um, with the professor of ecclesiastical history in St. Andrews, uh, uh, Jim Cameron, uh, father of Ewan Cameron, that many of you all know as another distinguished Reformation scholar. Um, um, both those hedges were not easily kept in order. I can tell you uh, they were um, 71 and 73 Hepburn Gardens, and there, were, there was the odd um, mild territorial dispute about uh, over hedges and mild territorial disputes about who had the right to be uh, professor of history at St. Andrews University. Um, but I'm, I know all of those things are now so much better. Um, um, a second uh, rather tangential connection is that um, uh, Andrew is currently vice president of the Royal Historical Society. Um, um, a club which foolishly invited me to become a member a long time ago. And the only thing I'm really proud of, I think, in my academic career is getting an essay accepted for publication in the Proceedings of the Royal Historical Society, which contained graphs, tables, and maps. Um, and this was a frightening innovation in the days. Um, it certainly was the first, and I think maybe the last article to be published in that way. I don't know if it's the last, actually, but it was certainly the first. This was back in... Um, in the medieval period. Um, but it seemed like a mild uh, victory at the time for the emerging field of social history. Um, um, a mild victory, because I'm not sure it was ever followed up. But anyway, um, uh, uh, so those are my two uh, rather wacky connections. It's now my pleasure to introduce the person who will properly introduce uh, Professor Pedigree to you this afternoon, my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Michelle Sanchez, Assistant Professor of Theology here at the Divinity School. Professor Sanchez received her doctorate in the study of religion here at the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard and completed her dissert dissertation on provenance um, from Pronoia to Eminent Affirmation and John Calvin's Institutes of 1559 under the direction of our colleague uh, Amy Hollywood. 
So Professor Sanchez's uh, research in, uh, interests include the Christian movements of reform and complicated legacies of Protestantism and the complex interrelationships between theology, politics, and rapid social change that marked 16th century Europe and about which we'll hear more later. She also studies ways of reading theology that are attentive not only to the traditions themselves, but also to how theological writing responds to concrete historical conditions and general human concerns. In short, nobody could be more predestined to introduce Professor Pedigree to you than my uh, colleague and historian and theologian of Calvinism, Professor Sanchez. Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Dean Hampton, and for getting the obligatory predestination joke out of the way. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, it says, as uh, Dean Hampton has said, I'm Michelle Sanchez, and I teach the Reformation here, and I tend to focus, uh, my training is in theology, and I focus more on the intellectual effects and underpinnings of the Reformation, but I am entirely persuaded, um, and my work pushes in the direction of engaging history and historical method for understanding the way in which the intellectual contributions of the Reformation were enabled to take effect and to study historical conditions as sites that elicited those conditions. And in that sense, it is a great pleasure to not only introduce Dr. Andrew Pedigree, but to have, uh, to be able to learn from his work, which really um, does that kind of deep, careful archival research that is so important for understanding how the intellectual ideas take on a form of publicity. So the, the kind of nuts and bolts, which I have to confess, will be a, a summary and not an exhaustive account of Dr. Pedigree's CV, um, is that Dr. Pedigree comes to us from the University of St. Andrews, where he's the professor of modern history, and where he continues to play a major role in shaping the field of Reformation studies. Well, at St. Andrews, in addition to mentoring young scholars in the field, um, quite an auspicious list, as I've seen, Dr. Pedigree has been a prolific author of many articles and an impressive list of monographs and edited volumes. His earlier titles, in some ways, speak for themselves. His first book, Foreign Protestant Communities in 16th Century London, drew attention to the key role played by refugees in the formation of English Protestantism. Emden and the Dutch Revolt, Exile and Development of Reformed Protestantism once again turned to the role of a refugee center in the Dutch Republic as a key site of Protestant publishing. Finally, his acclaimed 2005 study, The Reformation and the Culture of Persuasion, addresses the complex factors that made Protestant conversion a compelling option for so many. In these works, Dr. Pedigree has enriched our understanding of the European movements of reform through as I already mentioned, careful archival research that complicates and recasts our understanding both of who early Protestants were and of why they might have been persuaded to identify in some form or in some way as Protestant. More recently, Dr. Pedigree's work has taken a turn in pursuing pioneering historical research in the history of communication. In 2011, he published a study titled The Book in the Renaissance, his subsequent 2014 study titled The Invention of News was recently awarded Harvard University's prestigious Goldsmith Prize, a prize given to works that, and I quote, fulfill the objective of improving democratic governance through an examination of the intersection between media, politics, and public policy. 
And finally, one year ago in 2015, Dr. Pedigree has tied these research interests together with yet another book published under what I have to say is a wonderful and tantalizing title that I will read at length, and which you've seen on some of the posters, Brand Luther, How an Unheralded Monk Turned His Small Town into a Center of Publishing, Made Himself the Most Famous Man in Europe, and Started the Protestant Reformation. This work addresses a topic that, in my view, could not be more relevant to so many contemporary conversations and questions circulating around the role of media in crafting politics of truth, the relationship between communication and business, and the ongoing mystification surrounding what precisely it is that makes something go viral. And of course, by engaging these questions in relation to the enigmatic figure of Martin Luther, Dr. Pedigree invites us to once again consider the role of religion, of theology, and in particular of Protestantism as it is, and I think remains, intertwined in all of these questions. So if one strength of Dr. Pedigree's contribution to historical scholarship has been to put careful, careful archival research to work in guiding his readers to hone better questions, such as why did people choose the Reformation or when did the news first become a commercial commodity, this latest work perhaps helps us to hone another question of perennial importance, which is what precisely renders an intellectual public? By scrutinizing the virality that attached to the 16th century figure of Martin Luther, Dr. Pedigree helps us to move beyond the limitations of thinking of the digital revolution as somehow overcoming and rejecting print, and instead to think more constructively about techniques of publicity that may obtain across varieties of media, techniques that exploit porous boundaries between theology, entrepreneurship, and technology. So without any further ado, Dr. Andrew Pedigree. Thank you for those very kind words. Thank you for this invitation. Uh, and thanks also for the splendid exhibition which uh, was on today and which contains many of the designs uh, that I'll be speaking about in, in, in my remarks. Well, uh, as Michelle said, I've just published a book called Brand Luther, a title I had to fight for against many wobbles by the publisher about whether this were, would, would do. Uh, so I thought I'd just tell you how I came to write it. It was in 2011 that I received out of the blue a letter from Scott Moyers uh, at Penguin. And he wanted me, he'd been reading the book in the Renaissance, and he wanted me to write a book called 1517, about Europe in 1517, in preparation for the great Reformation celebration. Now, I wanted to, to work with Penguin, but I certainly didn't want to write that book. I, I could see what uh, Scott had in mind. I think he was really inspired by the success of James Shapiro's uh, book, 1599. The problem is, um, as we will touch upon today, that virtually nothing happened in 1517. <laughs> Certainly nothing much relevant uh, to, the, to the Reformation. Uh, it is really one of the dullest years in the 16th century. <laughs> so I pitched back uh, this idea uh, and what I had in mind was to do something I'd always wanted to do, which was to bring together the two strands of my work on the Reformation and the history of the book, and really to answer this question, how did Luther become a media phenomenon? I think this was one of a series of 
unlikelinesses that propelled the Reformation. Luther, at this point, was middle-aged. He was middle-aged even before he published his first work. He wasn't a, a young man on the make, like, like Calvin, for instance. There was nothing in the first 30 years of Luther's life to suggest that here was a man who would convulse a continent. It was extraordinary that a man who had built a steady and in a modest way successful career within the church should suddenly repudiate both the institution and its spiritual leadership. And it's even more surprising that he should have survived to tell the tale. When at the heart of the Luther affair, Martin journeyed across Germany to face the judgment of the German Empire at the Diet of Worms, he didn't expect to leave Worms alive. And that he reached this climactic moment owed everything to the solid support of his own local ruler, Frederick the Wise, a devout Catholic who never left the old faith. In this, and in so many respects, Luther's career was a pyramid of multiple improbabilities. And he owed his notoriety during these years to another of the Reformation's extraordinary improbabilities, that a monk who, into his 30th year, had published nothing, should somehow reinvent himself as a writer and polemicist of extraordinary power. Luther, in effect, invents a new form of theological writing, short, clear, direct, speak, uh, speaking not only to his professional peers, but to the wider Christian people. And he achieved all of this from a thoroughly improbable place, a small, inconsequential market town on Europe's eastern periphery, a place that to this point had scarcely figured in the annals of European history, Wittenberg. Now, Luther himself was distinctly unimpressed when he first passed through the gates. He had found Wittenberg, he reflected some years later, on the edge of civilization. If it had been only a little further east, it would have been in the middle of the barbarians. Other visitors were equally unflattering. According to one traveler who experienced Wittenberg at about the same time as Luther, Wittenberg was a small, unattractive town of wooden houses, more a village. And not surprisingly, when Luther became famous, these were sentiments that his enemies were eager to echo. According to Johannes Cochleus, an early and dogged critic, Wittenberg was, and here I quote, a miserable, poor, dirty village in comparison to Prague hardly worth three farthings. In fact, it's not worthy to be called a town in Germany. It has an unhealthy, disagreeable climate. It is without vineyards, orchards, or fruit-bearing trees of any kind. Dirty homes, unclean alleys, all roads, paths, and streets are full of filth. It has a barbarous people who make their living from breweries and saloons, and a body of merchants not worth three cents. George, Duke of Albertine Saxony, this gentleman, the enemy and rival of Frederick the Wise, put it more succinctly, that a single monk out of such a hole could undertake a reformation is not to be tolerated. Indeed, I think one of the reasons the papacy may have been so slow reacting to Luther was because they couldn't really conceive of anything important coming from a place like Wittenberg. So today we will try to discern how all of this happened and how print played its part. 
But first, we have to acknowledge one further truth, that the triumph of print was not itself preordained. I think this represents a far more fundamental challenge to our understanding, because the transition from manuscript to print is always treated as a seismic moment for European society, a technological revolution bound to succeed. So it's well to remember that when Gutenberg began his experiments with movable type in the 1440s, it was by no means obvious that this was an invention that Europe needed. Europe was already full of books, beautiful handcrafted manuscripts. More to the point, even after Gutenberg had exhibited his wonderful printed Bible, printing almost faltered. Gutenberg himself, as we know, was bankrupted by the project. And even though the Bible itself was massively expensive and had sold out instantly. This was experimental technology. But for the next 40 years, people struggled to make it work. In the first age of print, few made money from the sale of books. On the contrary, bankruptcy and failure were the normative experience of those involved in the printing industry. Now this, of course, is a very different narrative from that normally offered when print makes its triumphant march across Europe. In this, which we may call the Eisenstein model of print, as news of Gutenberg's great achievement spread, every prince, bishop, or town council wanted to have a press of their own, and printing spread quickly. But what the Eisenstein model does not dwell on is that most of these ventures, unsuitably located in small cities away from the centers of population, closed after publishing only a handful of titles. These boutique printing houses, following the model of manuscript production, uh, very soon uh, were brought to a close. It took some time for the fatal flaw in the business model to become apparent, and that was this. It was comparatively simple, technically, to print 300, 500, or even 1,000 copies of a printed text. It was far more difficult to sell them. The impact of this becomes very evident when we look at a series of maps which trace the development of print. Uh, and here, each location um, is, represents the size of the local industry. So very small is no more than a handful. And you see right from the beginning, in the first experimental years, what will become the strong spine of print down the Rhine, across the Alps, into Italy, is very quick to develop, take shape in the 1470s. And you can see the Eisenstein um, vision, which is lots of places with printing. And you can see these dots appearing. But you can see, if we track through in five-year periods to the end of the century, that as soon as they appear, they often disappear again. Small places of printing in Western France, the failure of Spain to develop a single center of printing. And all the while, these large centers are getting larger. And if we go through to the end of the century, we'll see that by now, print has largely consolidated across a central channel down the Rhine across the Alps with major centers like Venice, Paris, and South German towns becoming huge. Now, I think these charts lay bare the essential problems of print. 
This lay not with the technology that had been essentially mastered by the time Gutenberg published his Bible, but the economics of sales, the far more difficult task of how to create a commercial infrastructure. How that is to master a whole series of problems that did not really apply in the manuscript world, raising venture capital for the long interval between the beginning of the project and having anything to sell, which might be as much as 18, 18 months for a substantial book, how to find customers who might be spread around Europe, and how to get books to them and get the money back to the producer. The answer, painfully derived after 30 years of expenditure and failure, was to be guided by those who had this sort of experience, and that is wealthy merchants who dominated Europe's transnational luxury trades. Now, these were the men who knew what was necessary to make the new trade work, raising capital, transporting books in bulk to major markets where they could be traded, often by exchange, for other consignments of books. They knew how to arrange storage for the many hundredweight of paper every uh, edition needed, and how to handle the complicated loans and exchange transactions necessary in any capital-intensive industry. So the book trade contracts. Although books were at some point in the 15th century printed in more than 200 places around Europe, in fact, two-thirds of them were produced in only 12 cities. All of them were large commercial centers strategically located in Europe's major trading places, six in Germany, two in France, and uh, four in Italy. Now, this iron geography of book production would prove remarkably enduring. Of the 12 great printing towns of 15th century Europe, none was smaller than 30,000 inhabitants. And this was true also of two 16th century latecomers to the printing elite, Antwerp and London. So this was a world that should have had no place for little Wittenberg. And initially, this was exactly how it turned out. The experimental age of print, the 15th century, passed Wittenberg by altogether. Such books as the small city required could have been purchased in nearby Erfurt and Leipzig. The first printing press was not, in fact, established in Wittenberg till 1502 as a service to the new university. Most university towns had a press of their own, but this, in Wittenberg, was hardly a flourishing venture. And it was probably only the determination of Frederick the Wise to have a press in his capital, which led to it, allowed it to stagger on. In fact, between 1502 and 1516, five successive printers came and went in Wittenberg, a sure sign that uh, it wasn't very successful. Uh, and they produced a total of only 123 books, an average of eight a year. All were in Latin, and most were very small. And this is an early work by uh, Johann Rau Grudenberg, um, who's the fifth of the five, and will play rather a large part in our story. Now let's look at the Luther effect. 
This is uh, some figures taken from the Universal Short Title Catalog um, and just shows Wittenberg printing. And you'll see if you go into the catalog, it has all sorts of facets down the side so you can uh, analyze all this by place, language, author, so on and so forth. What it shows is that between 1517 and 1546, Wittenberg publishers turned out at least 2,721 editions, an average of now of 90 a year, a tenfold increase. This represents around 3 million individual copies. Now, this vast blossoming of what was essentially a new industry was entirely due to Martin Luther. One in three of all the books published during these three decades were Luther's own works. Another 20% were those of his Wittenberg colleagues and followers. And the Luther effect proves remarkably enduring. Even after his death, the industry continued to grow, reaching 165 new editions in 1563 and over 200 annually in the last decade of the century. At this point, Wittenberg was Germany's largest publishing center. Thanks to its favorite son, Wittenberg had subverted the iron economics of publishing, the apparent requirement that major centers of production could only be located in Europe's principal commercial cities. And this was a transformation which seemed to many contemporaries quite miraculous, not least Luther himself. Now, Luther, as we know, first came to prominence from his attack on indulgences, the 95 Theses, whose posting we now celebrate as the start of the Reformation. Until that point, Luther had built a decent career as an impressive and respected member of his own Augustinian order. But he was scarcely known outside that order, and we know this from a remarkable document rediscovered by Bernd Müller, the distinguished German church historian, which appears to be a, some form of recruitment campaign for the universities of northeastern Germany, Leipzig, Wittenberg, Frankfurt, and der Oder. One old and two new universities, but none in Europe's top rank. And this has biographical sketches of 101 distinguished professors from these three institutions. Yet even in this relatively modest company, there was no place in the top 100 for Wittenberg's professor of biblical theology, that is, Martin Luther. Now, the reasons for this neglect is not difficult to see, because in 1515, Luther, although an established fi fixture in the Wittenberg faculty, had published nothing. His first tentative steps into print came only in 1516. Yet within four years of this, Luther would be one of the most famous men in Germany. By 1518, indeed, he was already the most published living author in Europe. Now, this notoriety begins with the attack on indulgences. Luther knew that when he took aim against indulgences, he was attacking a hugely important institution and a cornerstone of popular devotion. What is less widely appreciated is that the attack on indulgences also threatened an extremely lucrative part of the printing industry. This was ideal work, printing indulgences, for a printer. In contrast to the works I've described, large works which require investment capital, 
An indulgence was a single sheet of paper printed on one side only. So long as the printer could source the required paper, it was a straightforward job. Furthermore, this sort of work had the priceless advantage that here the printer was working with a single client. The entire stock would be delivered to one customer. They simply had to fulfill the order and deliver it to the sponsoring church, bishop, or indulgence commissioner. So there were none of the complex problems of distribution and sale connected with retailing books. And the demand was enormous. We know of one contract for 130,000 indulgence certificates. Another for the Mon Monastery of Montserrat in Catalonia was for 200,000 copies. Now the campaign for the rebuilding of St. Peter's in Rome from 1515 to 1517 against Luther, which Luther was to protest, brought forth a similar cascade of print. Interestingly, among those who printed the various printed artifacts accompanying this campaign were some of Germany's most accomplished printers, including Melchior Lotter in Leipzig, Sylvain Ottmar in Augsburg, Adam Petri in Basel, and Friedrich Papus in Nuremberg. Within four years, all of these men would be heavily involved in publishing Luther. Indeed, Petri was one of the first to print the 95 Theses. This flip-flop, I think, demonstrates that how little room there is for sentiment in commerce. The church, to this point, had been an excellent client. Half of all the printed books published in the 70 years before Luther were for the church or the pious laity. But then Luther became an even better bet, and the printers adjusted. Once Luther took aim at indulgences, all this happened remarkably quickly. Luther exhibited his 95 theses on 31st of October, 1517. Eight, years before, eight weeks before, he'd penned 108 theses against scholastic theology, a subject which should have been more controversial. And he did his very best to publish these, publicize these first theses, but no one would rise to the bait. The prospect of a debate in distant Wittenberg was obviously unappealing. With indulgences, it was different, and here print was the key. Within the fir first few weeks, the original Wittenberg edition had been reprinted three times, in Leipzig, in Nuremberg, and in Basel. The previous one I showed you was the Nuremberg example, and interestingly, this is probably a genuine reprint of the Wittenberg original because it's printed in three groups of 20, uh, uh, three groups of 25 and one of 20, which is the form that Rao Grunenberg characteristically used. The, uh, the Leipzig edition is probably a hurried, unauthorized reprint published to take advantage of the market. But you see here, perhaps you don't see, but uh, it ends with 87 because some of the numbering is repeated down here. Um, and it wasn't an accomplished piece of work. And so you see that none of them are actually, very obviously, 95 theses. And that goes for the Basel pamphlet as well, which adopts the, uh, the original 325s and the 20. And it was this pamphlet edition, uh, the Basel edition, with which, with, with which the indulgences really enter the bloodstream of European intellectual life. It was this edition 
that Erasmus sent to his great friend Thomas More in England in March 1518. Now, opponents had the opportunity to respond, and they did so at a meeting in Frankfurt under Oda, where the Dominican faculty closed ranks around the champion of indulgences, Johann Tetzel. This is the only surviving copy of these theses. It should be said that it becomes more difficult to trace all this broadsheet material because the German bibliography, the Fadiv Zexen, leaves out broadsheets. So whereas indulgences from the 15th century are meticulously documented, the trail is much more difficult to reconstruct in, in the 16th century. Luther decided to defend himself against these charges. And it's here, I think, that he really broke new ground. He decided to write in German. The Reformation, in my view, really starts in March 1518 with the Sermon on Indulgence of Grace. This would perhaps not be a major contribution to the ongoing theological debate, but it was an instant publishing sensation. It appeared in two Wittenberg editions, and by the end of the year, it had been reprinted in Leipzig four times, twice each in Nuremberg, Augsburg, and Basel. And this publishing history sets a pattern that will be followed for almost all of Luther's vernacular works for the following years of controversy. An instant, insistent demand for the Wittenberg originals, followed by immediate republication in the major citadels of German print, because these places, Leipzig, Nuremberg, Augsburg, Basel, to be joined by Strasbourg, are five of the six major print towns of the day, the exception, of course, being Cologne, which stayed loyal to Catholicism. In this way, through these reprints, Luther made his way into the homes of thousands of his fellow citizens who had probably never before owned the work of a living German author. The Sermon on Indulgence and Grace alerted the German printing industry to Luther's potential value. But what is perhaps more mo remarkable about this modest, unassuming work is what it reveals about Luther's completely unexpected facility as a vernacular writer. This was Luther's first serious foray into vernacular writing yet it can only be described as a work of intuitive genius. Luther replaces the 95 propositions of the Latin theses with 20 short paragraphs, each developing a single aspect of the question. None is more than three or four sentences long. The sentences are short and direct. The whole work is a mere 1,500 words. It fits perfectly into an eight-page pamphlet. This was a revolution in theological writing because this is not an age that in general valued brevity. Sermons could last two or, three, two or three hours. They were tests of endurance. This indeed was rather the point. Luther, in contrast, had produced what he calls a sermon that could be read or read aloud in 10 minutes and still engaged the heart of the question. And this, I think, is the truly revolutionary moment of the Reformation. Over the next four years, Luther would meet his critics, build his movement in a torrent of publications, 45 separate new works 
1518 and 1519, another 20 in 1520. All were read and reread throughout Germany, published in a staggering 565 editions. But Luther was not satisfied. In particular, he was not satisfied with the quality of the Wittenberg contribution to this print onslaught. And here was the problem. Until Luther, Wittenberg had been a tiny outpost of European print. Most of the books needed in the university were bought from elsewhere, usually in Leipzig. The local press potted along, producing unambitious literary works for the local professoriat and the formal paperwork of academic life, such as dissertation texts. And it relied on a single shop with probably a single press run by a steady, dependable man named Johann Rau Grunenberg. Now, Rau Grunenberg was quite happy to take on Luther's work. Indeed, he was a very loyal follower of Luther. But he could not adapt his working method to deal with the new demand for Luther's writings. Worst of all, Rau Grunenberg's limited range of, um, in fact, if you just toggle back to Basel and then you get to this, Rau Grunenberg in 1518, his limited range of types and his limited imagination could conceive of nothing stylistically more ambitious than pale imitations of the sort of utilitarian Latin work he'd produced up until this point. This is a particularly egregious example. This is Rau Grunenberg in 1518 trying to be a, a bit fancy, and you see it doesn't work at all. You get this sort of sort of slightly sort of tipsy appearance as it sort of drags down the page. It, uh, and there's no attempt to decorate or to vary the type phases. Now, by 1518, I think this was a serious problem for Luther, both aesthetically and in practical terms. During 1518, Rau Grunenberg's press was clogged up printing Luther's most considered defense of his teachings on indulgences, the Resolutiones. This forced the reformer to send more and more of his other original works to Leipzig to get them printed. And this was unsatisfactory, and he decided to take the matter in hand. Luther's choice fell on Melchior Lothar, one of the best established of the Leipzig printers. Lothar was by now a veteran of the German print world, having first published books in Leipzig as long ago as 1495. The most substantial obstacle in his case was that Lothar had a perfectly satisfactory relationship with the old church. It had been Lothar who in 1515 had published the manual for confessors for the indulgence campaign that so offended Luther. In 1518, he would publish the first Catholic attack on Luther and two editions of the Roman condemnation of Luther's teaching on indulgences. Yet a few weeks after this, he was publishing Luther. This then was essentially a pragmatic alliance. What seems to have attracted Luther was Lothar's reputation as a publisher of serious works of Latin scholarship. It was here that Rau Grunenberg was most deficient. Rau Grunenberg's plain, undecorated, utilitarian work reeked of provincialism, precisely the impression Wittenberg could not now afford to give now that it was the spearhead of a new movement of reform. In May 1519, 
Melchior Lothar made a first visit to Luther in Wittenberg. It was clear he was now seriously considering opening a branch office there, and shrewdly, he wooed Luther by exhibiting a sample of the typefaces he would be employing in his new Wittenberg shop. Luther was enthusiastic. These typefaces bore comparison, he said, with those of Froben, the touchstone of quality, the Basel printer whose edition of Luther's collected works in 1518 had made such an impression. What a boon it would be, Luther rhapsodized to Spalatin, to have works printed with a Wittenberg imprint with types of this quality. Now, the two men, Luther and Lothar, were able to build their working relationship during the Leipzig Disputation, where Luther was lodged in Lothar's substantial workshop residence. Lothar was now too well established in Leipzig to move himself, but he contracted with Luther to establish a branch office under the direction of his son, Melchior Jr. This deal brought with it a press, with the press a portion of Lothar's types. Others were indeed obtained with Basel, as he promised. The press was up and running by December 1519 and immediately and fully operated by 1520. And the look of Wittenberg Luther editions improved immeasurably. Here we see what was becoming quite distinctive of the Reformation Flugschriften. They were usually very short, eight or 16 pages, which would have been two or four sheets of paper printed and then folded into four. Using so little paper, they were always very cheap. They usually had a neat, orderly title page spelling out the subject, and in Luther's case, normally naming the author. The title page would also, as with Lothar's example here, often make use of decorative woodblocks to encase the text. And you've seen in the other examples from Leipzig, Basel, and elsewhere that this was quite common uh, in the larger printing towns. So already, Wittenberg is beginning to take on the livery of a larger printing place. But what Lothar brought to Wittenberg was essentially the proficiency and style of Leipzig. There was nothing very distinctively Wittenberg about these books. To create a specific Wittenberg style, the city's printers had to make greater use of their latent asset. For while Augsburg and Leipzig might have greater capital resources, the longer printing heritage and the better established printing shops, Wittenberg had Lucas Cranach. Now, Cranach is best known to us as an artist, the man who created the great sequence of portraits of Luther. The two men were close and firm allies in the work of the Reformation. They were mutually godfather to each other's children. What is less well known is that Cranach was also a major player in the Wittenberg book industry. From 1521, he briefly ran his own press, and with characteristic thoroughness, he also obtained his own printing, his own paper mill. That way, he would uh, control the whole production process. Now, Cranach only ran his own press for a, a few years, but even after he'd sold it on, he remained intimately involved in the industry since his workshop enjoyed an effective monopoly of the production of woodcuts. And it was this 
that allowed Cranach to transform the look of Wittenberg books. To this point, Wittenberg in prints had been mostly been associated with the spare utilitarian texts of Rao Grunenberg. Printers outside Wittenberg had improved the look somewhat using these decorative borders. Cranach offered a new solution, a title page frame made up not of separate panels, but a single woodcut. Here, the design was allowed to flow around a blank central panel into which the text of the title could then be inserted. It was a masterpiece of design innovation with one step solving the complex problem of integrating text and decorative material, which allowed space for imaginative artistic expression on the front of the book. Now, until this point, grand woodcut title page designs of this sort had been mostly confined to the largest and therefore most expensive books. Cranach's exquisite work now adorned pamphlets that might sell for no more than a few pence. Cranach brought to this new engagement with book design the accumulated experience of one of Germany's most capable and imaginative artistic entrepreneurs. The result is a whole series of masterpieces in miniature, bringing to the title pages of, Luther's Reforma of Wittenberg's Reformation Flugschriften a balance, a poise, and sophistication that they had to this point entirely lacked. And I think here a statement was being made that the message of the Reformation, Luther's message, deserved to be arrayed in this magnificent form. In the process, and thanks to Cranach's decisive intervention, the Wittenberg book was catapulted from the back of the pack to the front in terms of aesthetic appeal. The distinctive look provided by, Luther, by Cranach's title page designs was the final component of a puzzle that had been taxing Germany's printers since the early days of the Reformation how to make the most of their most marketable product, the new phenomenon that was Martin Luther. Now every element was in place, a title page border that arrested the eye and a text that highlighted the two most significant elements of what was on offer, Luther's name and the place of origin, Wittenberg. This is what I call brand Luther. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of this is the quality of the use of white space, of gaps. So that if you imagine the normal buying practice here is to see these um, pamphlets piled up on a bookseller's stall. And the immediate connection you make between the major selling points of this in these uniform borders is, I think, effective aspect of this branding. The best way to appreciate it is to visit Wittenberg itself, where a whole sampling of Wittenberg imprints are arrayed in cases rather as contemporaries would have seen them piled up on booksellers' stalls. These Wittenberg frames also have a lightness of touch, a clarity of line, so they serve to locate the work but not to draw the eye away from the central elements, the title, the name, and the place. 
Another testimony to its success can be seen in the speed with which Luther's work, uh, with which Cranach's work was copied elsewhere. I now have a student, Drew Thomas, who is uh, incidentally a graduate of this place, who is currently investigating Cranach counterfeits. That is, counterfeits or imitations of this design on works not in fact printed in Wittenberg. You have a lovely example of this upstairs in the exhibition which is on at the moment, which actually uses this very same design. Um, and here's another example, an Augsburg version uh, of the same uh, design. If you put them side by side, you can see um, significant, though relatively subtle, differences. And Drew has found a quite amazing number of these, this use of Cranach designs outside um, Wittenberg. This is a world of weak copyright, and printing, as we know, is an industry which evolved through imitation. Publishers go to the Frankfurt uh, Fair as much to look, as much to look and learn, as they do to buy and sell. The plunder of his artistic genius was the greatest compliment to Cranach's work, and it too helped spread the Reformation. By this point, Luther and Wittenberg had achieved a transformation in the German print world. The tiny local industry of Wittenberg had been transformed, as it would be again in the course of the 1520s, with the arrival of four more men to start their own firms. And this, what has occurred in Wittenberg, is a, transform, is a microcosm of a larger transformation of the German print industry. In the first age of print, German printing towns had been comfortably outperformed by, uh, outpublished by Italy. Yet between 1520 and 1530, the high point of Reformation printing, Germany published more books than Italy, France, and the Low Countries put together. Printing presses were established or re-established in places where previously it had been economic. The diversification of print that had so spectacularly failed in the 15th century was now achieved thanks to the new markets generated by Luther. The point I want to emphasize is that this was very much Luther's own achievement. Not only because he provided printers with such good copy, he also had a very clear understanding of how to write for print, the right length, the right style, the best package. And Luther was a hands-on author in every sense. He would be in and out of the print shops, supervising, cajoling, badgering. He was impatient of sloppy work, and like all authors, thought that left to themselves, printers would cut corners to increase their own profits. He also had very strong views of the aesthetics of the books. Now, most of these conversations would have taken place face to face, and so are lost to the historical record. But we do get some sense of the extent of Luther's engagement when he was required to spend long periods away from Wittenberg. One such occasion came in 1520, uh, when he went after the Diet of Worms, when he was spirited away for the Wartburg for his own protection. He stayed there 10 months, chafing at his um, captivity, but very active in writing. One thing he did, could do, was write, and he, he wrote and wrote. And he sent to Wittenberg these new writings. The proofs were sent back to him. 
also with a string of instructions for the printers. And I'm going to quote to you one such letter, which was to his friend uh, Georg Spalatin, uh, which is very revealing about his re relationship with the press. This is Luther. I have received the second and third sets of printed sheets of the book On Confession. I cannot say how unhappy and disgusted I am with the printing. I wish I had sent nothing in German. It is printed so poorly, so carelessly and confusedly, to say nothing of the bad typefaces and paper. John the printer, this is Johann Rau Grunenberg, is always the same old John and does not improve. <laughs> For goodness sake, under no circumstances let him print any of the German apostles. What I have sent of them should be stored away or rather returned to me so that I may send it somewhere else. Now he's really getting steamed up because he's threatening to send them out of Wittenberg to print them in another town and that's serious stuff. Therefore, he says, I am sending you nothing now, although I have finished almost 10 large manuscript sheets of the apostles. I shall send nothing more until I have seen that these sordid money grubbers in printing books care less for their profits than the benefit of the reader. For what does a printer seem to think except it is enough that I get my money? Let the readers worry about what and how they will read it. Now, ominously for Raoul Grunenberg, who was so often the guilty party, Luther added ominously that he was much more satisfied with the printed sheets of another work, of another work printed by Melchior Lotter. And this was very much Luther's way, to divide his works up between the different printers. And if he didn't like what one had done, he would order any reprints to be handled by another shop. And in these matters, Luther ruled absolutely. If they wanted the work, the printers did what was required. In 1530, Luther left Wittenberg again, this time to observe the imperial diet from the safety of Coburg Castle. This he did not like, but as a condemned outlaw, he could not attend the diet in Augsburg. And once again, he found relief in a fury of writing. He completed 11 new works during this period, and they were distributed among five different printers. This was intended that all should share in the profits that accrued from, his pr from printing Luther but only, that is, if their work was satisfactory. Now it was not Spalatin, but Luther's wife, Katerina, who was expected to keep an eye on the printers. When it seemed that Sherlands offered Luther's sermon for keeping children at school, planned indeed not to, set, shelve it, not to publish it, but to shelve it for the winter to catch the spring fair in Frankfurt, that was a quite normal procedure, Luther was beside himself with, with anger. And his wife was ordered to march into the shop, remove the manuscript, and reassign it to Georg Rau, who seems to have been his favorite at the moment. In September, it was Hans Weiss in the firing line, this time for refusing to publish Luther's exposition of Psalm 117. Why, Luther asked, did he not want to do it? Actually, the reason was clear enough, because Luther had given this work already to the local printer at Coburg as a sort of thank you for having me present, and Weiss simply didn't think there was enough room for a reprint. Now, for the Wittenberg printers, this was obviously very trying and very stressful, but by now they'd learned to live with Luther. They endured his outbursts because he'd brought them such a priceless asset, his own 
enduringly popular works. In the course of the 16th century, Luther's works were published in almost 5,000 editions, and a quarter of these were published in Wittenberg. Works by other reformers were published in a similar profusion. As a result, Wittenberg's publishers became some of the city's richest citizens, and the whole city enjoyed an economic renaissance. The wooden houses were replaced in stone. And that explains one remarkable conversation that took place in the summer of 1539. Around the end of June, the printers of Wittenberg approached Luther with an extraordinary proposition, that in return for a guarantee of first access to any future works, they would provide him with a supplementary annual income of 400 gulden. Now, this was serious money. Luther's salary was 200 gulden at the time, so this would have tripled his income. Now, Luther refused. He preferred to make no money from his books written in God's service and obviously to give no further ammunition to his enemies by profiteering from God's work. Actually, he can now well afford this high-mindedness, thanks partly to his businesswoman wife, who kept the household well-supplied and brought in considerable extra income from her various business ventures. They, if you go to Wittenberg, one floor of the Lutherhaller is now devoted to Katharina von Bora, and this makes a very good point about her entrepreneurial business sense. So although Luther complained intermittently of money worries, Luther was actually comfortably well off. But that's not the real point. What is remarkable about this story is that the printers were prepared to pay so much at a time when Luther's productivity was declining steeply for what in any case he provided them for free. There could be no more graphic demonstration of Luther's personal importance to the industry that had made Wittenberg and indeed made the fortunes of his friends in the printing industry. If you go to Wittenberg today, you see the city that Luther made, these beautiful Renaissance facades which replaced the wooden houses and with extra stories, partly to take in the many extra inhabitants of people who had come to study in Wittenberg. At the heart of this, of course, was the print industry, hugely expanded since Grunenberg's rather stumbling efforts to bring Luther's work to the public. The scale of this transformation can be observed in the publishing history of Luther's Bible. The publication of the first part, the New Testament, was a milestone in the Reformation, but this required an enormous logistical effort, the creation of a new publishing consortium involving Lucas Cranach, his partner Christian During, and the printer Melchior Lauter. It was a great success, but the New Testament is obviously only a very small part of the total biblical text. During the next decades, further parts appeared as translators continued their work until it was complete, culminating in the magnificent complete Bible of 1534. This was a work which could simply not be undertaken in a small shop, a folio of some 600 leaves, lavishly illustrated with Cranach's woodcuts. It was enormously expensive and time-consuming. Hans Luft simplified the task by dividing the work into five self-contained parts, which allowed the printing press to proceed on several presses simultaneously. But it still required an enormous investment capital, 
simply to produce a sufficient quantity of paper to keep the presses rolling. That Luft could achieve this so effortlessly and still make money shows how far the industry had come. We started with one magnificent Bible, that of Johannes Gutenberg, in 1454. It was a milestone of print, but bankrupted its creator. Eighty years later, Hans Luft can manage a similar task quite smoothly in a place, Wittenberg, where all the natural economics of the trade suggested should not have had a printing industry at all. Luther's magnetic power somehow overcame the disadvantages of distance. Luther, as we've seen, also intervenes directly to improve the quality of local print and to ensure that an ever larger share of the trade was reserved for Wittenberg. In the first years of the Reformation, it had suited Luther that his works were reprinted elsewhere. This spread the message quickly. But in the second decade, it made sense to ensure that the local economy benefited first. For all this, Luther's movement was transformative, not only for this small town in northeastern Germany, but for Germany as a whole. The new genres invented by Luther, the small pamphlet Flugschriften, led the industry towards a new market, new readers, and a new business model. As the fires of the Reformation dimmed, printers sought out new forms of cheap print, not least the first news pamphlets. And here we can see a close cousinship of form and style with the Reformation pamphlets. They also appealed to many of the same readers, readers who had now got into the habit of buying books and could now buy news books. The early 17th century would see the introduction of new serial news publications, the first newspapers, of which this is an example. In these ways, the new energy and markets unlocked by Luther were maintained along with a newly engaged reading public. And this, too, was part of the heritage of Luther's extraordinary engagement with print. Thank you very much. and thoughtful and wonderful presentation. It's kind of a, I feel that this is a presentation for all um, failed RAE, research assessment exercise producers that Luther in 1515 would not have been submitted to uh, an exercise and by, seven, uh, by 1530 had revolutionized the continent. Um, so we have um, uh, uh, time for some questions. Um, um, uh, if you would um, uh, raise your hand. We have someone, right? M we do not have someone moving a microphone around, uh, but um, because otherwise we won't get the... Um... Do you need someone to run shop for you? Um, any volunteers? Thanks very much. Great. Um, great. So, Andrew, do you want to... Um... Yes. You take the questions? Yes. So I, want, <clears throat> I wanted to ask, in, in what form were the original uh, <clears throat> 95 theses posted? That is to say, obviously, Luther wrote them by hand. He did not post any a handwritten version of it. He had it printed immediately. 
Well, my, my, my belief is that all the evidence points to uh, the 95 Theses having been posted as a printed broadsheet published by Raoul Grunenberg. Um, the specialists in the room will know that uh, this is a field which has been subject of some controversy uh, since a, a mischievous German theologian in, in the 1950s suggested that Luther didn't post the 95 Theses. And since this is one of the iconic moments of German history, to be told that it probably didn't occur um, is obviously very discouraging. Um, I think it did. Um, the fact that the, there were no recorded witnesses um, probably speaks to the mundane nature of the event. Uh, posting routine academic uh, business is hardly the most thrilling event, and no one would have known of the consequences. Uh, I think the key piece of evidence here is the discovery in 1983 of a single incomplete copy of the uh, thesis on scholastic theology that Raoul Grunenberg printed for Luther eight weeks before. Uh, this turned up uh, sandwiched between the pages of a larger book in Wolfenbüttel, and it's in Raoul Grunenberg's type. We, we know through this that he used this uh, arrangement of 25s to organize the material. Um, so I think everything speaks for the publication having been in print not least because Luther was so keen to publicize this as a potential public event. The only thing that probably I think is unauthentic is the suggestion um, that Luther personally um, walked through the streets of the town to post himself. Um, a, a good friend who works uh, on, on German Reformation, lives in Germany, said to me, um, did you ever meet a German professor who deals with their own paperwork? <laughs> Uh, and, and that, to me, is a very persuasive part. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the lecture. So uh, I'm, I'm mindful of um, uh, the late Bob Scribner's work on woodcuts as carriers of the message of the, the, the Lutheran message to a wider audience. And that's not the same as the Granach. Granach. So just, just um, what would be the relationship between your mm. evidence and argument and, and his? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I am a great admirer of uh, Bob Scribner's work. Um, I liked him very much. Uh, our interactions were always very friendly. Uh, and I regret that I cannot have this debate with him in person, but I think on on, on this, he is simply wrong. Um, I think the last thing, the complex images, the complex uh, satirical and polemical images were intended was for simple folk. I think the, um, it's very alluring to think that this visual material can be a bridge between the literate and the illiterate because it explains one of the uh, aspects of a popular movement but the iconographic complexity of these images suggests that they were not intended for the illiterate, but be, to be enjoyed by sophisticated people who could decode them. As, for instance, with modern uh, p political cartoons now, 
where you need to have a very clear understanding of the underlying issues and the physiognomy of the politicians being shown. Uh, and it, it, it draws you in by offering you a sense of your cleverness, that you can understand what's going on. So I think that the illiterate heard the message of the Reformation probably by word of mouth, probably preached. Um, Luther's, um, Luther's movement succeeded mostly in towns where there was a local supporter preaching the word from, from the pulpits. And that these images were probably intended for collection by sophisticated people who enjoyed uh, their, their jokes and their pokes at Luther's opponents, but they weren't intended for exhibition on walls. The one exception I would make, uh, which I think was probably a very powerful representation, was, were Cranach's early woodcuts of Luther himself, the portrait woodcuts which we know were being reproduced and sold in very large numbers. And the interest in Luther as a person, as a celebrity, as a news event, I think fuels a large demand for a printed representation of Luther. People wanted to know what he looked like. And as I showed you at the beginning, the pictures were very carefully calculated around a very attractive image. Luther, the simple man in the monks, Cowell, Luther, the, the, the solitary figure standing up to the church, the simple man of God. Um, and it's been said by specialists that Cranach had two goes at this. The first one he did was reckoned to be too aggressive, so he redrew it in a more um, humble position. And I recently came across a, a reference, which I, was totally unknown to me until this point, uh, of Luther writing to, uh, I think again to Spalatin, saying, I've enclosed, as you asked, the copies of Luther's portrait picture, which I have signed. Um, and the signed portrait, I have thought, was a sort of invention of 20th century celebrity culture. I hadn't realized that uh, Luther was up to it. But he was extraordinarily precocious in his understanding of the way you can build a movement through innovative developments of, um, in publishing practice. Um, and one of the first things that sent me down this trail, actually, is uh, uh, Christopher Boyd Brown's edition of the prefaces, which shows Luther consciously building community by endorsing other people's bo uh, books. And the prefaces are not his most sophisticated or ambitious pieces of writing in many cases, but simply by associating his name with another project, he knew that he would Im improve its sales, improve its value, and build his community. So he has a very sophisticated, I think intuitive understanding of the printing process and the publishing world. As you noted, uh, Duke George in Leipzig was an implacable opponent of Luther. Um, how is it then that uh, Lothar, uh, the printer in Leipzig, was able to uh, become so engaged with Luther uh, and print so much of Luther's work without Duke George closing him down? Well, the shutters only really fall after Luther's formal uh, condemnation at the uh, Diet of Worms. And from that point, when he is officially an outlaw, uh, the printing of Lutheran books in, uh, in that part of Saxony is, in Ducal Saxony, is now prohibited. 
And Duke George goes as far as to invite people to turn in copies of Luther's works, uh, which they have bought. And that doesn't go very far, but the ban on printing does and is effective and ruins the Leipzig printing industry. Um, you see, and if you go to the Universal Short Title Catalogue and just look at Leipzig printing between 1517 and 1527, you see a precipitate decline of output. Um, and the Leipzig printers appeal to the, to the town council and say, can you please persuade you, George, to let us print Luther? Um, because we are ruined. Um, you can see this in the uh, bibliographies collected to, uh, together by Christoph Reska, where you see them moving to smaller houses. Uh, some of them leave, leave town. Uh, two of them dis uh, tr try the desperate uh, measure of setting up a little branch office secretly in a small town somewhere out of Leipzig where they can take part in Luther publishing. Um, so yes, he, he is a, an effective but chivalrous opponent of, of Luther. You have to think, given the borders between ducal and electoral Saxony sort of wave in, in each other, had he wished to lay hands on Luther, he could probably have done so. Um, but he's a very considerable person and uh, greatly to be respected. And it's interesting that it is precisely when he dies that the printers make this deputation to Luther because uh, Ducal Saxe is now converted to Lutheranism and Wittenberg fears that with the doors now open for business in Leipzig that they will become a threat to the established industry again. So yes, he does. He's very effective. Thank you very much for your uh, perspective on this. Um, one of the things that I'm uh, particularly interested in is the, the aesthetics, uh, the, the distinction in aesthetics here. That seems to be, this is, you've given us a way of thinking uh, about Luther as the Steve Jobs of the ref reform era. And, uh, and, and the aesthetic sensibility seems to be much of the difference mm -hmm. uh, between, um, in, in brand, within brand Luther. So I'm curious to know how you see the aesthetics uh, of these works um, working out in this culture of religious persuasion, this, mm -hmm. this, uh, this effort to uh, broach new religious ideas, new theological ideas. Obviously, the, the aesthetics are important for, purch for, for purchasing, uh, for circulation. Is there a way in which uh, they're connected to sort of religious persuasion to, to certain uh, theological ideas are they uh, do they is there a connection or, or are they you know do they represent uh, part of what this what this persuasion consists of mm. I think think there you have to try and imagine the experience of the, the, the reader and then who who the reader is who, who, who is buying these books um, I think the answer to that, that that is quite complex and sophisticated I mean the readers are are several different groups. They are established collectors of books um, for whom these small pamphlets are a very unusual addition to their library. They're not used to having books of this type. And that's why I think you see so many of them have survived as impromptu anthologies, that people revert to the practice of the manuscript era in binding together 
numbers of these things together in 20s or 30s. And, and some have still survived, though, of course, many, if they come onto the market, are disbound to be sold separately. So this is an increasingly rare uh, uh, phenomenon. Then you have to think there is a class of people who is um, buying uh, books of this sort for the first time. And I think readers of that sort are attracted to purchase much in the same way, um, let us say, that a, a fan going to a football game buys a program. You, you want to make some act of solidarity to root for your team, and so you buy something, not because you really believe there's anything of interest in it that you want to read, but you, know, you can't go on the field, but you can do this. You can buy this program. And I think if you pursue that line of argument, it, it makes clear that it's perfectly possible uh, that many of the people who buy Reformation pamphlets weren't actually readers at all, that they were buying a totem, a totem of identity. And many of those who bought these works were also people who already knew and agreed with the messages in them. So I suppose I'm making a quite radical argument here that the thing least important about these pamphlets was often the text itself. Your talk has me as a, a non-specialist in the field wondering about the commercial calculus that may have been involved in the shift to the vernacular. Mm -hmm. um, it, it seems to me that that uh, constrains the book market geographically, mm -hmm. uh, but it also expands it domestically mm -hmm. in terms of class. Mm -hmm. Just wondering, I, I'm used to thinking of the shift to the vernacular in theological or social or political terms. Is there also a commercial calculus that's involved? in that transition? Yes, I think there is. Uh, I think it partly, um, uh, partly evolves from the poor experience of printing what humanists wanted them to print in the 1470s and 80s, and then being left with these enormous numbers of books on their hands. Um, and so the shift of the vernacular really takes several stages. The first stage is to work closely with the authorities. Um, because it's, it, it, it's official print which provides the first underpinnings of, of the presses. That is printing for the local town council or the local uh, prints. And that is a form also of, um, of indirect subsidy which, print, uh, which towns and um, rulers can make to their local printer to, to keep a printer in business. Uh, one of the things that students of the book are, uh, are now beginning to work on is non-commercial print. That is print which was never intended for retail sale at all, but where the whole edition was delivered to a single customer, either for them to move it on like indulgences or for it to be pinned up like ordinances or just to be scattered as some form of persuasive literature. Um, I think what you would then acknowledge is that this shift, nevertheless, um, by saving the industry, allows Latin printing to continue. And what you see in the 16th century is although the proportion of print shifts very significantly from Latin to the vernacular, Latin printing stays very robust at a certain level. So if you've got a graph, it's sort of Latin is going like this, whereas vernacular is going like that. 
But that still means that a very substantial proportion of the industry is still Latin, which gives an international market, um, and of course a much larger proportion by volume in terms of day's work, that is sheet count, is Latin. And one of the things that, that uh, bibliographers now have to do is to assist um, users of these tools, not only to think in terms of numbers of editions as a way of calculating output, but as numbers of sheets, because that sort of a calculation makes clear the continued importance of the Latin, uh, Latin trade. Although a lot of Latin works, like dissertations, are also short themselves. So in an ideal market, and you could say an ideal market is, let's say, the low countries, uh, you get a certain proportion of vernacular printing for local audiences, and then you get a Latin market where you also get exports. The Dutch are the ones who most perfect a role in the export market. Germany has some, France has some, England has none. Nobody is interested in buying books printed in England. And that's why the English market stays so small and so highly controlled. Just to follow up on that question about the vernacular, is Luther, how cognizant is he of the translation of his work into non-German vernaculars? Does he try to influence it? Does he have handpicked people translating into other languages? Or is it sort of a throw your hands up and you know, let it happen because it's fundamentally impossible to control? Well, I think the most influential spread of Latin, uh, of Luther's work abroad is in Latin. And it's also true that in this story, we must not ignore the continued importance of Luther as a Latin writer. You know, if, if I'm saying that um, the first people will hear of Latin in many German towns is when a local print, a pre a preacher goes into the, his own pulpit and says something in support of, of, of Luther, they will have been persuaded by a work in Latin. So Luther continues to write influential works in Latin. As for translations, I think of all the reformers, Luther is the one least interested in abroad. Uh, he's not well-traveled. His uh, only visit outside the Holy Roman Empire was to Rome, which was miserable. And he seems quite content after 1521, never to move far away from home. He does not interest himself greatly in Lutherans in places outside or the attempts to establish Lutheran churches in places outside um, Germany. His interaction with uh, potentially influential rulers uh, is often acerbic and counterproductive. We think of his debate with Henry VIII. And he positively discourages people outside Germany from establishing churches in defiance of the state. And if you're looking for a key difference between Luther and the second generation leaders like Bullinger and Calvin is that they are much more interested in an international movement than I think he is. I would like to follow up on um, a comment you made during the talk and then your response to Ryan who asked the question about persuasion. So you note, and one of the really interesting arguments I think in this book is that Luther is revolutionizing a form of theological writing, right? Mm. That 
um, what I wrote down is that the truly revolutionary moment is that he achieves a form of writing that is brief while still getting to the heart of the object. So I'm wondering how that coheres with the claim that the people who are buying this aren't necessarily interested mm -hmm. in what it says. Mm -hmm. And then a related question, but somewhat different, um, is I'm interested in hearing more about just your opinion of the probable motives of Cronach in this whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. So if Cronach, you know, he's working as a portraiture, um, what makes him decide to devote so much energy? I mean, this is an enormous amount of work to producing these artworks for these pamphlets, especially mm -hmm. if printing was sort of a budding industry but not a well-established industry. Mm -hmm. um, do you see his motivations as kind of, I mean, I'm sure they're a mix of all these things, but to what extent are they commercial versus theological versus mm -hmm. political, et cetera? Thanks. Luther is a, uh, Cranach is a very complicated man. Um, he is by this point one of Wittenberg's richest citizens. He's certainly uh, their greatest industrialist. So I think he sees in the Reformation a tremendous uh, economic opportunity, but he's also a very close friend of Luther, and he's clearly a supporter. Now, um, when he's at the, um, at, at the Wartburg and wants to know what's going on in Wittenberg, Cranach is his point man. He's one, Cranach is one of the few people who's told immediately that Luther is still alive and where he is. So they are, they are very close. Um, he's also um, quite ruthless um, in business terms. He has the uh, monopoly of the sale of sweet wines in the town, which is important, but he also has the local pharmacy. And I think, having read some of Evelyn Welsh's work, I think that's something of a secret weapon for Cranach. Because, of course, the pharmacy is the place where you go to get your medicines mixed and your, your servants go along to and they wait while um, these preparations are being made. Um, and so there's a lot of gossip, and the pharmacist knows everyone's health secrets. And if the pharmacist is also... Um, the town's principal business entrepreneur. That gives him a tremendous advantage in calculating who is a good or a bad risk for repayment of uh, debt o over the time. I think to return, divert to your first question, I think that is the, 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 mi the, the mix of impacts of Luther's writings, his works, is so different for, for different people. As I said, I think his Latin works are, are, are extremely important in making key converts. You know, we know uh, that this is how Johannes Buchenhagen came to Luther, by reading one of his major works and being initially shocked but then saying, no, it's all true. We know that Martin Bucer, uh came to Luther from hearing him at the Heidelberg Disputation. Luther's three journeys through Germany are very important in the first years in uh, getting him a wide circle of acquaintance. But we also know that for many people, their reasons for so supporting Luther were extremely simple. Um, the, the papal representative at the Diet of Worms is an extremely intelligent observer of this phenomenon, They're appalled but intelligent. And he takes note of what people are saying and doing. He notes with horror that when Luther arrives in Worms, someone, uh, a monk steps forward and touches his hem, as if this is Christ arriving in, in Jerusalem. 
And he notes that what people seem to respect about Luther is his integrity in standing up for Germany and standing up for himself. There's a strong nationalistic element to this, which is, I think is part of the reason Luther doesn't travel well. Um, but they also, if they are just to, to take a single theological idea, it is the idea of the pure gospel, Rhein Evangelium. And that is a, a extremely powerful slogan for the Reformation because it's something it's impossible to be against, really. You know, who could be against the pure gospel? I think one of the difficulties for Luther's Catholic opponents, who, as we know from very good work from a number of scholars, are themselves e extremely um, nimble disputants, is that they cannot get any purchase on this debate, partly because they, to a large extent, think that it should not be taking place. They think that the debate should have re remained a debate between theologians in a scholarly language. So simply by overleaping the um, limitations of his position as professor, Luther, I think, and writing in the vernacular, Luther made a symbolic move from the normal rules of engagement. And it was one in which his opponents, I think, found it really difficult to follow him. I will ask a, a sort of modern question, if I may, mm -hmm. um, arising out of your talk. As you know, the, the current fashion in academia is for, for open access. Mm -hmm. um, the economics of academic publishing are se seen as being deeply problematic, um, and so everything should be available freely online, um, and university libraries can then cut their uh, periodicals budgets and, and all sorts of things. Um, I suppose one of the questions that your talk might raise is whether the Reformation would have happened if the University of Wittenberg had had open access, or, or to flip it around the other way, do, does Luther's experience, uh, the Reformation publishing experience, have anything to say to the current mm -hmm. problems of, of academic publication and uh, its economics? Well, what, what I think Luther's movement tells us in that respect is that nothing is as it is predicted to be. I mean, I think any media transformation is accompanied by a mass of false prophecy. Uh, we see this. We we see this with um, the boosters of the internet and all the wonderful things they thought would happen. Uh, none of them forecast that um, within 20 years, internet betting would be one of the biggest industries in the United Kingdom. That wasn't one of the great benefits of the internet. They were uh, pro uh, proclaiming for us. Um, people, boosters of print, thought that this would replace the manuscript. And yet, you know, when I arrived on Saturday, it required a manuscript document, which I had signed, for me to get into the United States. I mean, technologies never develop as their progenitors intend because customers disrupt those simplicities. I think one of the things you see with the transformation from manuscript to print is that customers want the best of both worlds and they take the best of both worlds. They continue to use manuscripts but avail themselves of print in the same way that we continue to avail ourselves of print while making full use of di digital technologies. I think one way of looking at um, the current debates over open access and 
the future of academic publishing is to say in some respects it's never been easier for uh, a young scholar to get their books published. Um, because publishers now have a model of publishing where selling 100 copies to go straight into the uh, basements of 100 major academic libraries makes them profit. And so if you regard a monograph less as something to be read, but rather more as an apprentice piece, which simply marks a passage from one state to another, then academic publishing is in rude good health. Whether that's the best way for young scholars to disseminate their work is another question. And here, open access is, of course, a huge help to young scholars in allowing their work to, to be read and known. I mean, when we have people for job interviews at the University of St. Andrews, um, it's by no means certain that their monograph will be in our library. So anything available on open access helps their case and helps their work be known. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not all that gloomy about this because, you know, I remember when um, I started my PhD, I went to see my, my college tutor and he said, well, by all means, do a PhD, but you will never get a job. Uh, so I said, well, thanks, I, I, but I, I will, I think, do a PhD. And when I'd done my PhD uh, and uh, when I seemed in prospect to get a job, he said, well, well done, but you will never write a book. And I, I, I think he, he I, I would give him the benefit of the doubt, and I think he was not there uh, thinking of my quality as a writer so much as the technologies change, the, the, the death of hot metal and, and all that sort of thing. And even then, in the mid-1980s, he was predicting the death of the book. And the book lives on robustly, whereas some of the uh, liminal technologies which have followed are now... Uh, truly dead. Does anyone remember the CD-ROM? That was, I remember, to be the, the next big thing. And I went to one conference of academic publishers where they lectured us on this. And we said, well, it's not very convenient. You know, sometimes I work with two or three books together. How will I do that with a CD-ROM? And this lady from Oxford University Press, now no longer at Oxford University Press, turned to us and said, well, you'll just have to work that little bit harder. <laughs> and what she meant was that we have invested hundreds of thousands in you using the technologies, not that you want, but that we want. And that's, I think, the way in which technological change goes wrong. Um, how I think it will end, um, obviously we don't know at the moment, but I think academic publishing, because it has such an important role in our communal lives, will find a way to keep going. Uh, what, in a way, I'm equally interested in now is the future of news and how that will deal with the enormous quantities of news now available for free and how you monetize technological change is of course the problem which almost wrecked print and of course has caused digital quite a lot of grief since the 1990s. Thank you so much for uh, <laughs>